We're knee-deep in a series that we've been walking through called Examine Your Vision, and we're talking about all the different things in Christianity that we sometimes think we understand that maybe aren't so clear to us because we keep disagreeing as a church about what they mean. So we've been exploring all these topics that you see on the screen week by week. And it was interesting because we were talking about, is there really such a thing as absolute truth? Does everyone get to pick their own truth? What does the church do with people who have doubts? How do we handle that in our context as a unified body? But tonight, this is our topic. What should the church's response be to homosexuality? This is where I'll make my disclaimers. First of all, first disclaimer up front, I'm not a psychologist. I'm not qualified to explain a lot of the questions that we might have about homosexuality. But I am going to tell you that I've tried to understand them from two or three different perspectives. All right, I've looked at three different sources on this subject to try to get a rounded view from the church in different contexts what they think is going on. The other disclaimer is we're not going to dive into a full-on discussion tonight of maybe some of the social issues that surround it. What we're really trying to do is our responsibility is to figure out as Christians, what's our response? What should our response be? Many of us, frankly, just haven't thought about it. Don't care. We completely ignore the issue. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to deal with it. So we're missing a key area of evangelism. If it's true that we're Christians and we understand the truth, then we should be engaging people. Now on the screen, you see I've picked out a couple examples that, of how some Christians deal with the subject of homosexuality. I've highlighted them. As you can see, that one says, God hates sodomites. <laughs> and they cite the Bible. God hates you. Intolerant of discrimination. Death penalty for homosexuality. Homosexuals, here's what the Bible says. Repent and turn to Jesus. This is what our media commonly portrays our response to homosexuality. Maybe it's your response. Maybe that's what you think the right answer is. Knowing the DNA of this group a little better, I think that's probably not true. Most of us are probably not militant in this way that we think that this is the right answer. In fact, if I polled you right now without even raising your hands, I know that you would probably disagree with these slogans, at least the way they're presented. You would disagree that this is the right way that we're supposed to approach this subject. So I'm not going to even bother trying to talk you out of that. What I'm going to try to talk you out of is in just plain ignorance of the subject. Because most Christians are comfortable just saying, you know what, let somebody else worry about it. I don't need to think about it. It's just, it's not my issue. It doesn't happen in my churches. Just leave it alone. Let somebody else deal with it. Let me tell you who that somebody else is, by the way. One of the references that I use to study to get this down is this book right here, God's Grace and the Homosexual Next Door. It's written by a whole group of authors from a ministry called Exodus. So Exodus is the ministry. It's Exodus International. Their ministry is founded on helping people who are trying to get out of a homosexual lifestyle to exit into a regular lifestyle. That's their ministry. Uh, this group is called Exodus. Once or twice when we've been on campus recruiting, we've been confused for this group, and they, some angry dad will come up when they're first dropping off their son or daughter to APU, and they'll say something like, are you part of that Exodus group? So then they would just like grab their kid and walk away because we were obviously heathens. Okay, let's go on and talk about this subject tonight. 
The test that I just gave you is just to get your attitudes down. You don't have to give it back to me. We'll talk about it at the end and come up with the answers just to see. I want to see if your answers, I want you to commit to them early and then see if this changes your mind at all. What's the church's response to homosexuality? Let's start with what the church's response is supposed to be in general. We're supposed to be a light trying to show people the way to Christ. All people of every kind. That's our job is to really show people who Christ is. The truth is we're really bad examples of Christ. If people wanted to try to figure out who Christ is by watching our example, they'd probably just ditch the whole thing. Thank God the Holy Spirit is alive and working in the world because he somehow still drives people to Christ despite all of the Christians in the church who are screwing it up for everybody else. So how does the church currently respond to homosexuality? Here, there's, there's a large array of them. I just highlighted the more hateful ones kind of on the first slide. But here, here's, let's look at some of these. First of all, here's one. There are some churches right now in Christendom that fully accept a gay lifestyle. Their comment, if you ask them and you press them on it, is the Bible is unclear on the point. There's real no clear discussion about homosexuality that would tell us to somehow speak against it in any way. It's okay, 100%. All right. Here's the opposite extreme. We just saw some of those signs. The opposite extreme on the clear other end of the spectrum is God hates all homosexuals. In fact, they'll actually say homosexuals are not eligible for salvation. They're just going straight to hell. Can't even redeem them. Can't do anything to somebody who's struggling with homosexuality. One, just a shade less than that, is that homosexuality is a kind of demon possession. So you'll often see some of these churches constantly praying for people. They'll use the word to be delivered from that kind of lifestyle because they feel like it's some sort of spiritual oppression that's landed on them. Going down the spectrum on the other side, a little bit less than a full acceptance, and you can see we're starting to move towards the middle here, is an affirmation of a gay lifestyle, a blessing of same-sex unions, ordination of gays into the ministry and the church, and, and trying to read the Bible in that light to say it's really inclusive, not exclusive. All right? Yeah, the full acceptance one is like, there's not even an issue to consider. There's no, there's no need to even discuss the point because God created both people equally and there's no difference. This one kind of comes into, it's very close, but there's still some effort being made to actually identify people in different uh, distinctions between their, their orientation. So we got one, accept it fully. Two is the affirmation, same-sex unions. That Number three that I'm putting up in there now is... Homosexuality is a legitimate lifestyle. That's the doctrine that's been adopted by a lot of mainline churches. United Methodist Church, Presbyterian Church. They're kind of finally, they've been struggling with it for, for over 20 years at their general assemblies, but their general assemblies are coming to the point where they say, you know what, we just need to look at the Bible and understand that things have changed. you know, Or we just need to accept this. Yes, you can be homosexual and live a Christian lifestyle. It's, it's fine. And it doesn't need to really affect too much. You can see they're just kind of shades of one another. Okay? But the ones that hit the affirmation and the full acceptance are a little different than the one I just highlighted there because they're actively telling people, they're preaching to people, this is good. It's okay. Don't change. Don't make any difference. It's fine. Okay? Number four. Now we're coming towards the middle. These people look at homosexuality as a sin, but it's something you can change. 
Christianity, if you're going to be a if you're going to be homosexual and be in the Christian church, you have to practice lifelong chastity is the position. Okay? Lifelong chastity. So these people believe that it's a sin, but you can't change your nature. So they accept someone for who they are, but they say it's sinful, so you're just going to have to deal with it, just like any single person within the church deal with lifelong chastity if they weren't married, whether they were heterosexual or homosexual. It doesn't matter. That Christ discussion about sexuality was limited to marriage. And finally, kind of the last of the middle grounds, is homosexuality can be healed and it can help to find new identities for us. All right, so we go from the top, full acceptance, two, affirmation, three, it's legitimate, four, it's a sin but unchangeable, five, it can be healed, you can actually change it. Six, it's demon possession. You have to exercise it and deliver people from it. Seven, there's nothing you can do. Damnation is all that there is. Can't even be redeemed. That's the full gamut of the church's views. Where are you? What do you guys think? It's one of the reasons I wanted you to fill out that thing a little early, start to think about it. What do you think about it? Is there somewhere that seems like more legitimate? Let me go forward and give you some other points. And again, I want to cite that all of this information is coming from this and two other books, because I'm not going to stand here and tell you that I have the qualifications to demystify or demythicize or whatever it's called, these things. Okay, here's myth number one. Homosexuality is the worst of all sins. Anyone believe that in here? Some people in our church do. That's a myth. I think that all sins are equal in God's eyes. I think that God doesn't rank sins. I think that any sin that we have in our life is just as bad as any sin that anybody else has. But if you feel differently, take me on. This is where you do it. Everybody agree? We're all good? I don't know if I fully agree that all sins are ranked equal. Okay. And you also have different situations where lists are given of like, hey, people are doing like, adulterers, drunkards, and so on, you know, like, where it lists specific sins, and so I don't, I wouldn't feel necessarily like a strong case for it, but I would still agree that that, that definitely is not biblical. Do you think that Christ's sacrifice covers all sins equally? Forgetting whether all sins are equal, yes. are they all covered equally by Christ? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Well, that as a man, too, just going, are you kidding me? Like, a lie is as bad as homosexuality? It's like... But why is it the same, if you were to agree that it was? Why is, why is a lie the same as homosexuality? It's disobedience, and both of those separate us from Jesus. And if, if we didn't have Jesus, and I lied, and you slept with another man, we're still jacked. We're still apart from God. Yeah, I think that's, that's got to be the center of our discussion, is God's standard is absolute holiness and perfection. He doesn't tolerate anything less than absolute holiness and perfection. That's the mark, right? Right, and so that if you deviate from the mark by an inch or a mile, it doesn't matter. You've missed the standard. And that's really key to understanding why this concept of lying and why, by the way, our churches misread homosexuality, I think, as, at least in terms of its severity. We've tended to make it the most taboo thing, but that's probably because we, for the most part, who are in the church who are heterosexual, are afraid of the subject. So we make it the most taboo and the most difficult, and we end up hurting the very people that Christ loves 
All right, and I also think with, with along that mark too is that uh, as Christians, uh, we're called to live as Christ is lived, and Christ wasn't, he didn't sleep with man and man, he didn't lie, he didn't do those things. So in general, we're supposed to live to a higher calling. He didn't get married either, so you okay being celibate the rest of your life? Well, that's a different thing. Well, I mean, he didn't get married. I mean, he didn't you know have a house. You know what I mean? It's yeah, but he didn't have a house, right? His point brings weight because we laugh and go, John, you're playing devil's advocate, and it's like, no, we have a lot of ideology built on those things. I gotta be like Christ. And we're going, well, what? Robes, sandals? Well, no, not like that. Well, what are you talking about? I'll, I'll throw up some verses and then we'll come back to whether you want to, because right. I don't well, think that as a group we're going to debate whether homosexuality is a sin or not, okay. because I think everybody would agree. I thought this would be a very quiet topic, that we'd just be sitting here all night, like, like hearing the crickets. Myth number two, homosexuality is just a choice. You just choose it. You just want to do it. That's a myth. Most people who struggle with homosexuality, most, will tell you they, that they wouldn't want to be homosexual. They, they didn't choose it. They didn't like wake up one day as a kid or as a teenager or as an adult and say, this is something I feel like doing. In fact, most people who study the subject tell you that these people develop, that homosexuality is developed as, as a child and they start to have same-sex attractions the same way that as we grow up from childhood into puberty and on, we start having heterosexual attractions. That the attractions are there. They didn't just wake up and go, you know, I think it would be a good thing for me to have this. Now, there is some cultural changes that's going on in our culture as the subject of homosexuality is becoming more open to discuss, as homosexuality is being celebrated more, as it's being more accepted on college campuses. For example, if you ask young people on a college campus, let's say around average age 20, if they support gay marriage, 66% of them do. If you ask adults, like 33% of them do. Okay? That's a big difference, but that's because younger people are more comfortable with the subject. Younger people are more experimental and are more open-minded these days because the media, pop culture, and other things have told us that it's okay to have a homosexual lifestyle. All right? So just hang on to that thought for a second. The experts who are in this book, by the way, one of the things I like about this book is it's written by Christians, of course, but four of the authors were formerly gay when they started this ministry. And they, they talk about how they struggled when they were young and where it came from, that they didn't really want it. It just showed up. Okay, so these are people who have come out of it but are still saying if you think it's a choice, you've missed the whole issue. Okay? Philip. Just on, on syntax work, because if it's arguing that it's not just a choice, then you wouldn't be able to not be homosexual. Like these people at least that were formerly homosexual. Like you wouldn't be able to choose against it. If it's, it wasn't just a it's syntax. Yeah, when I say like, just, because some people in the church believe that you just wake up one day and you say, you know what, I'm going to choose this. What the authors are saying is that you start to feel same-sex attraction even as a child. All right, myth number three. Homosexuality is all about sex. It's not. It's really about finding acceptance, intimacy, friendship, a lot of things. It's usually last about sexuality. Again, not my views. These are the views of the people who, have, who deal with it on a day-to-day -day basis. All right? So it changes, I think. The reason I'm putting these myths up is because I think for us, including me, who don't know much about the subject, this starts to tweak our minds a little bit. Myth number four, homosexuality is genetic. At the other end of the spectrum, 
There's some people who think you just choose it. There's other people who think, no, you're just born that way. There's nothing you can do to change it. There's a gene. Two different books that I looked at state openly that of all the studies that people have done in 50 years looking at the subject, no one has been able to establish a genetic link. Now, there's some people who believe that it might be that we just haven't found the gene. But you know that our state of genetics now is pretty advanced. We're finding genes all over the place that do lots of things. Let me ask you a question. Just yeah. take it away just to try to throw a point. Is alcoholism something that you carry on from one generation to another? Because I would fight against this and go, it's not genetic. I mean, for years. But, um, but alcoholism is more genetic than this would be. And for me, I would leave room for that. If alcoholism, right. It's a behavior that you don't put it, fall everything on that, but it's like, there's a... Let me, let me hit on Jamie's point for a second, because the point of alcoholism and other things that they've identified, like, like alcoholism and obesity are two that they're really hammering home, and there's a couple others. And the reason I think those are important analogies or similarities to draw is that even if a genetic link is established with homosexuality, that would mean that it would probably move into the same category as some of those other things. No one is going to be able to argue successfully that the Bible says drunkenness is okay. There are other sins that you might be able to find a genetic link for that you just go, that's an outright prohibition. I guess the best way to put it is even if a genetic link is established, we're still not done with the subject go, oh, that's it, it's genetic, therefore we should just accept it and be fine. Because we don't do that in any other place. We don't say, sure, it's okay for you to do all these things because there's a genetic link. We're just saying, hey, that's an issue you're going to have to overcome and deal with too. Because God's standard is not changed. It's unchanging because it flows from his perfection. Like we said last week, the truth flows from the fact that he is truth. He's not changing in that way. So if we find other circumstances, that just means, well, that doesn't mean we're going to ditch it and start over. Also, just to make a point across the board, I, like, I'd almost stand on the guarantee on this that there's one thing in our lives that we, we all struggle with, you know? And there's one thing that we have to constantly be saying no, 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 and it keeps coming back and it keeps coming back into our lives. And so it's like, I don't think that that's a choice for us to just go, oh, I'm not going to do that today. I think it eats at us, and it eats at us away, and we have to constantly reject it and go, no, no, Lord, you know, get this away from me, help me, give me strength. Like, I think that that's just the way, like, in our sinful nature as we were born. So there are things that, like, I think naturally, because of because of our, the flesh that we live in, we have to say no to certain things, whether that's homosexuality, alcoholism, sex, you know, whatever, obesity. Like, there's just those things that you have to, you know, lying, getting, you know, anger management, whatever. I mean, there's those things where we all have problems, you know? Yeah, look at, think about your own childhood. Did anyone, and I mean childhood, like, leading up into your... You know, like your prepubescent and your puberty years, did anyone choose to be attracted to the other sex? Did you like wake up one day and go, now I'm old enough, I should start liking the other sex? I mean, I know some girls or boys when they're young, they go, ew, you know, there's that little thing, you know? But that's based on a lot of things like personality. It is based on how you're brought up. Just to tell you some of the factors that researchers identify, Christian and non-Christian researchers identify the following factors. One is, some of you, when you're looking at your exam, you can look back and see that homosexuality, first and foremost, begins a lot of times with an inability to deal properly with someone of the same sex within your family dynamic. 
He usually has to deal with a son who's not dealing well with the father or there's a bad relationship there. Or I don't mean like an abusive one, although it can be there. Abuse is one factor. But the biggest factor seems to be some sort of strange or strained relationship with the same-sex parent. Okay? Other ones, like I said, abuse, especially same-sex abuse. Personality is an issue. Some personalities are more susceptible to homosexual tendencies. That's just the way the researchers are finding it. They can't explain it. But like I said, when you're a kid, you're not choosing to wake up one day and go, I like girls or I like boys. You just, something just starts to happen. Now, with the media and the culture and the, everybody else kind of telling you it's okay, it's okay, and confusing it, that's a different story. All right? But I just want to make it clear that it's not just a choice and it's not like you're forced into genetics where you can't get out of it no matter what. There's, some, there's something in between. All right? And you'll hear different ones in the church. The people in the church who hate homosexuality completely, they'll tell you it's a choice. You made it, you're going to hell. It's harsh. It's wrong. The people who tell you it's totally okay, God made you that way, you should be 100% accepted for who you are, are saying it's genetic. Yeah. Well, even the idea of genetic, when we're talking about it, it just means you have a genetic tendency towards something. You know, like, so yeah. it still means there is a choice. But the point. genetic one has bothered the church for a long time because they thought, like, if God made somebody with a genetic tendency, like, is he playing some cruel joke? But what they've missed, again, they, the reason they missed the point is because they've made homosexuality into a different thing than every other sin. Like, I have a genetic tendency to love girls more than I should, and I've lusted my whole life. What's the difference between that sin and the person who's lusted? Now, they're both wrong outside the context of marriage. And somebody's going to say, oh, that was just positive, like, attraction, feeling sort of thing. They were not positive, all right? I was lusting and sinning. There's no doubt about it, all right? Yeah. I think because with all the other sins, lusting, lying, greed, I think everyone can relate to that. And if you deal with someone that's like, oh, hey, I have an attraction to guys, you're like, well, wait a minute. Okay, let's leave it right there for a second because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to add more information as we go on. Here's myth number five. 10% of the population is gay. It's a myth. What's the actual percentage? Do we know? I put 15, 16, 18. In Hollywood or the rest of the nation? Come on. There's places like, you know, there are places like Idaho where it's like, you know, population zero, right? What's the actual percentage in the United States? Two to three. Really? Yeah, you guys think it's... Now, maybe if you watch the WB, it's everywhere. Or what's it called now? The CW. Yeah. All right. If you watch the media, it's like 10 or 15%. Yeah, because on every show, in every place, the culture is placing characters who are positively identified and supported for being gay. I mean, if, you, if you, I challenge you to find anywhere in any movie or television show that's come out in the last 10 years a gay character that's evil or bad. Okay, they're always the ones that are victimized, or they're the ones that are championed. They're the ones that are picked on. There's the ones that you sympathize with. Okay, they're the ones that that's the there's an agenda. Now I don't know who's pushing it. You know what? I'm not for prejudice, but at the same time, the views of a small number of people don't represent maybe what God's truth is. Okay, so that's where you have to separate what's happening in America and what's happening in God's kingdom. America may be accepting of it, maybe growing in tolerance every day. That doesn't change God's standard. The truth remains the truth. Myth number six. Marriage or dating will fix someone who's homosexual. That's obviously a myth. Okay, anyone who wants to take that one on, we'll have to do it later because that's just too elementary. I think most of us know better than that. All right, let's look at some scripture. 
Here is what most people who are holding up signs will cite. Leviticus 18.22, do not lie with a man as one lies with a woman. That is detestable. Other translations say an abomination. All right. Now this word abomination is key because most people who are in the, what I call the hatred side of this homosexuality issue in the church will tell you it's an abomination. It's the worst of all kinds of sins because he calls it an abomination. It's not just a sin, but that word abomination is a level of sin that rises, something we call reprobation, like the worst possible sins you can get. And that's why there's no redemption for these people. You also, when you're talking about abominations, you put homosexuality in this category. You also should not have intercourse with any animal and be defiled with it, nor shall a woman stand before an animal to mate with it. It is perversion. So God was clearly telling the Hebrew people when he was giving them these laws early on, along with the Ten Commandments, there's two things I think are abomination. One is homosexuality. The other is bestiality. Don't do these things. And that's why so many people in the church are so militant about it. But they kind of forget this verse. You shall not have intercourse with your neighbor's wife. Okay. Here's the other part of the verse, by the way, just so you see. Homosexuality, bestiality, adultery. The Lord says that all of these things are abominations. So what I'm trying to point out is for the people who take the position that homosexuality is a separate kind of sin because God calls it an abomination, I just want to remind you that he calls all of these things an abomination. In fact, he does it multiple times. There are other places in scripture where he calls other things an abomination such as lying. So that's just to kind of show the scriptural support that it's not any worse than anything else. It's still a deviation of God's plan, but it's not any worse. Now, I will say in fairness that a lot of people point out that Jesus never said a word about homosexuality. Well, Jesus may have never been recorded as saying one word about it, but Paul's pretty clear about it in his writings, and we have to assume that the same Holy Spirit that directed the gospel writers is directed Paul's writings. In fact, Paul's writings come before the gospels. All right? Here's some things that Paul writes. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the spirit of our God. This is a clear statement that homosexuality is a sin. But it's also a clear statement that everything we do is a sin that violates God's standards. So let's start with that concept. And swindlers are in there with homosexuality. Yeah. So we have two extremes going on. The people who just say all homosexuals are worse than everybody else, we clearly know those guys are idiots. Then you have the people, I think, at the other extreme who are saying, there's nothing in the Bible that says homosexuality is a sin. Well, I, I don't know, but that seems to be pretty clear. There's also a verse in Romans that describes it. It's sinful behavior. So I think both extremes, like in most debates, whenever you have extremes, they're usually extremely wrong. All right? Because they're taking extreme positions. Look at the bottom. Such were some of you. Paul is writing to the Corinthian church where people were having homosexual relations among other things that they were doing. They found so much freedom in the fact that Christ says, I forgive you of all of your sins. 
that they just decided if Christ paid the debt, let's charge up the credit card. And they were doing all sorts of things in the Corinthian church, living in freedom, quote unquote, because Christ had given them that freedom. They could do whatever they want, so they just did whatever they wanted. And he wrote to them and said, you're missing the point. But what this also means when he says, such were some of you, but you were washed, it means that right from the beginning of the church, homosexuals have been part of the church. Washed, sanctified, justified, changed people. But for us to exclude them in our churches today, we're we're ignoring what Paul is saying. That means that some of the people who were in the Corinthian church were formerly gay. Maybe still struggling, but at least sanctified and justified by the name of Jesus. It's a key point not to miss. The way the church wants to read this passage today is to cut out certain things. That's how we want to read it. Those people are carrying the signs all the time. This is the way they want to read this verse. They want to just cut out the other things that they do and say, those are the only things that are wrong in the verse. By the way, the word effeminate, in some translations, is translated as male prostitute because it was men who were dressing up as women to be prostitutes who kind of look like women. So they weren't talking about just people who were like light in their shoes or anything. But we've adopted that word to mean that, just so that we're clear about what the text says. What if I change the verse around? Maybe applied it to our modern context. What if the verse looked like this? What if it said, do not be deceived? Neither fornicators, nor masturbators, nor viewers of online pornography, nor sex chatters, nor those who lust after their own body or the body of others, nor those who engage in crass humor, nor those who objectify the opposite sex will inherit the kingdom of God. Is it any different if I were to change the words around to a kind of the things that we fight and struggle with today? Because if we fight and struggle with those same things in that same verse, then what we're really saying is, There are people in the world who fight and struggle with homosexuality. True, there are people who could care less and they just accept it fully and they're fine. But there are some people who want to come out of it, who want to be part of the church, who want to be redeemed by Christ, who just say, I'm no different than you, but you've made me different. You've ostracized me from this church. And I deserve a chance to know the truth too. All people who are homosexual are not the same. There are some people who accept it fully, embrace it, it's their identity. On the other extreme, there are some people who are trying to find a different lifestyle. And most of the people are somewhere in the middle, who are just, this is the way I am. Maybe I wish I were another way, maybe I don't, but I'm just going to live my life the way that I know, which is this is how I feel, and this makes me feel good, and that's just what I'm going to do, which is where most people in America and the world are. Like, just leave me alone. Why do I have to deal with all this hard stuff? Like, why do I have to even care that there is a God? Like, just, I know what I know, and I don't know everything else, and I don't need to know I'm happy the way I am. So that's why when you're dealing with homosexuality, you have to identify what you're talking about. There are people who flaunt it, and they're very militant about it. That's probably a very small minority. And I also have to say that most of them are probably doing that because they're so angry at the structures that have kept them down, whether it's social structures like our country and prejudice, or whether it's the churches that have just totally rejected them. In the book that I was reading, 
there was a television kind of appeal and they were praying for people who were gay across the nation and it was like this thing they had on TV. I don't know how it got out, but they said like if you're somebody who's struggling with homosexuality and you want to find freedom, find your local church and go and tell them that you're struggling, that you want to get out because most people, those churches don't know that there's people who are trying to leave a homosexual lifestyle and they will help you. Christ will help you. So this one guy who's listening to the broadcast says, that's me. And he goes to his local church and he waits till after the service is done. He goes to the pastor and he says, I am struggling with homosexuality and I, I would like to find freedom in Christ. And I used to go to church, but it, I, I just don't, I, I want to come back. And the pastor said, you can't come to this church. We don't have any room for faggots at this church. That was the answer he got. I have no idea, but I bet you, you could take a dart and probably throw it at a phone book of churches and get that answer at probably half of them, okay? Because we're so weirded out by it, or we're so judgmental as, we're, I don't know why we believe, we preach a gospel that we're all sinners and we need to be saved, and yet we are so judgmental. That person then wrote an email to the people who had sponsored the broadcast and said, well, I did what you told me to do, and this is what happened. We're on the same boat. You know, he's like, I tried, Lord. I tried to go. They told me I couldn't, I couldn't go. That really just, that hits me to the core because it means that we as a church, a whole church, are so busy like on the extremes that we're missing the point. Okay, now I will tell you one other story just to balance it out. Not all churches are crazy like that other one. There's churches that are on the other side. An article that I was reading and researching this topic was by a man who didn't even want to give his name. He was talking anonymously, and he said that he went to a church that was like the other extreme. They kept telling him that it was okay to be gay. It was okay to be gay. That he was fine. That God made him that way. That God loved him that way. That God didn't want him to change. And the whole time he was reading the Bible thinking, that's not what it says. Like, I want to be free from this. And he was hoping that he could find someone to help him. But they kept telling him that it's unhealthy to change who you are. It's unhealthy to give up those patterns. You need to just accept who you are and accept that God loves you the way you are and don't try to change. And he said that did the most damage because it took him 20 years to finally undo the damage and go to a church where he could say, I feel like this is sin and I'm tired of people affirming my sin. I want people to help me get out of it. And now he was finally out of it. It took him 20 years of unwinding what the church had done. As he's writing the article, he's married, he's happy, but he says, I still struggle with same-sex attraction. It's not like it ever goes away, but at least I'm where I should be. And I started thinking, yeah, it's like me. I'm married. We all still struggle with opposite sex attraction. It doesn't go away. It's not like you get married, go boop, there it goes. It's the same thing with this guy. It's hard to say that with your wife's here, isn't it? Like, yeah, like she's looking at me going, I'm get you later. <laughs> this is it. You're done. How would Jesus respond to homosexuality? First, let's remember that Jesus routinely broke religious and cultural boundaries. He did things that shocked the Pharisees. Can I just mention them? He healed on the Sabbath. He entered homes of undesirable people. He spoke to people others ignored. He risked being called a drunkard and a glutton. He was numbered among the sinners, the book of Isaiah tells us, in so many ways. So first, we've got to break that barrier down. We've got to stop pretending like we can kind of cloister ourselves in our churches. Because all we're doing is locking the sin in. We're no less sinners than anybody else. It's not like we're building walls to keep people out. 
You know, the stench is already inside. We're the sinners. Jesus interacted with sinners by loving them first. And that's something we got to learn to do. Many people would never know how it is that you're supposed to deal with somebody who's in a homosexual lifestyle. Love them. Love them like they're anybody else that doesn't know Christ. <laughs> Love them like they're anybody who does know Christ. They should be no different. Jesus would have loved them with almost like a knowing love. Like know who they are, get to know who they are. You can love them, but you don't have to accept lifestyle. Well, we're going to talk about that one in a second too, because I want to talk about that phrase. All right, here's another one. Jesus physically touched people and allowed people to touch him. Look at these. Jesus actually interacted with people who were lepers, blind people, bleeding women, prostitutes, people who would have defiled any Jewish rabbi. Jesus did not pay attention to that. Why do I put that one up there? Because you know that there's also a ministry to not only people who are gay and gay lifestyles, but people who are struggling with age and AIDS and HIV. And we have such a fear of it that we're not reaching out to the people who are the most interested in what this world is all about and in finding Christ because we're in a difficult place. I think the most important one is Jesus offered people something better than their sin. Jesus is always giving people a choice. Something simple like just stop sinning and follow me. Take your eyes off of what you're doing and just get involved in what I'm doing. And you won't want to do any of this stuff anymore. He did that with somebody like Zacchaeus who was ripping off people. He, he didn't say like, hey, Zacchaeus, give your money away. He said, Zacchaeus, I want to have lunch with you. I want to come to your house. Zacchaeus, I'm going to tell you some stories. Zacchaeus on his own said, oh, Lord, I'm so done with my lifestyle of ripping people off. I'll give half my money away today. Let me just follow you. Okay, he did it on his own. All right, here's some thoughts that I put up. Here's a question we all ask in the church. Can, can homosexuals actually change? I guess it, it means, what do you mean by change? And this is the most controversial point. Because a lot of people will tell you no one can change. They can't change. It's unhealthy to help people to change. It's who they are. And by the way, both the gay community and the people who accept gays at one extreme of the church preach this. But a lot of people who've come out of a gay lifestyle say, I came out. Here's what it means to change so you guys know. This is kind of difficult to comprehend a little bit, but let's look at it. We need to focus on what it means to change. Are we expecting God to just miraculously take away their temptation? Well, he can, but does he do that in our own lives? Does God just miraculously take away your temptation when you say, Lord, I'm lusting, I need to stop that. Does he just go, okay, that's it, it's gone. Or does he want to see you change and renewed from the inside to learn to focus on him as opposed to just managing sin? From the research I did, I found this. Even for those who break away from a homosexual lifestyle, an absolute cessation of same-sex desires is rare. Some strive to live celibate lives, relying on disciplines to kind of keep them on the track. Others press on for a new identity in Christ, where becoming more Christ-like every day starts to replace the desire for sin, whatever the sin may be. That's where all of us should be. All of us are struggling with some desires, question is, do we just press on and find our identity in Christ? Do we just manage it? Just something to think about because a lot of people ask that question. Can we change? I want to end with this because obviously you know my bias already. I think that the people on the extremes of this debate are extremely wrong. They're biased, prejudiced, bigoted on one side 
And the other side, they're kind of reading the Bible in their own light. I'm not going to go into it right now because it would take some time, but if you have questions on the churches that affirm homosexuality, I actually looked up some of the passages from some of those churches' doctrinal statements on why they believe the Bible doesn't prohibit homosexuality. I'll give you the short answer. If you want the longer answer, you could read some of the statements. But the short answer is, most of them say that we need to read the Bible in a modern context. That what the first century was written and what they knew has changed. That we have to read the Bible through the lens of tradition. That we have to see that Jesus couldn't have meant all these things or that Paul couldn't have meant all these things and they're changing. And by the way, one example they cite is women in ministry, all right? Because the church does seem to think that Paul was talking in a limited context about women in ministry. That leaves the door open for those people who think maybe he was talking in a limited context to the Corinthian church about homosexuality. Because Jesus didn't mention it. Paul seems to be talking in that limited context, and that opens the door. I don't agree with that point of view, but I just want to tell you it's there in fairness. If you want to talk about it, we'll talk about it. Let's talk about this phrase. Hate the sin, love the sinner. That's one of those political statements in our churches that we love to use. God hates the sin, loves the sinner. It's true, but it can be a very abusive phrase. Okay? Imagine if someone says to you when you're telling them about Christianity, hate the Christ, love the Christian. You're like, wait a minute. How could you divorce those two from each other? Christ is at the center of of who we are. You can't hate Christ and still love me as a Christian, can you? But that's what we're saying to people who are struggling with homosexuality sometimes. At least that's what they're hearing. But the reason this is so popular is because we know that God hates sin, right? Why don't we have such a strong enough stance that we could say hate whatever? I I, I think that's a very uh, dogmatic and prideful place. Tell you why it's difficult in this context. I'm not going to tell you this is my opinion. This is coming straight out of the people who lived a homosexual lifestyle who were injured by this statement, which many of our churches use. To many people who are struggling with homosexuality, their sexual identity is who they are. The actions that they struggle with are who they are. So when you say to them, I hate what you do, but I love you, What they hear is like, you hate what I do. What you really hate is what I am. Don't tell me you love me because you don't love what I am. If you loved what I am, you would accept me. Now, I don't believe that phrase either. But that's what they're hearing. So our phraseology in the church to kind of simplify the whole homosexuality issue by just saying, hate the sin, love the sinner. Most people who are involved in this ministry counsel against taking that attitude. Just love the sinner. God will take care of the sin. Most of us, like I said at the very beginning, are just ignoring the issue. We're not even dealing with it. We don't want to touch it. We think it's somebody else's problem. And yet all of us in our life are touched by people we probably know that are around us who are looking at at the church and wondering, is there any acceptance of me in there? So at a minimum, they're probably just wondering, you call yourself a Christian. How do you feel about me as a homosexual person? And their first and maybe only interaction with Christ is going to be the way that we love or don't love them. And if you start maybe with at least just the love aspect of it, it's possible they may take a step closer to find out 
what this is all about. Remember, in the end, salvation is not about abstaining from homosexual sex. In the end, salvation is about finding Christ and having him solve the problem of our sinful lives by giving us a sacrifice, whatever that sin may be. So if our attitudes, our judgmentalism, our fear, our ignorance, or just our desire to stay away from the subject is preventing people from getting to know Christ, that's on us. And we need to cure that.